0: This is The Thirst Time presented by Track Brewing Company.
1: I mean, 25 years ago, if you told anyone who's making beer that there will be hops that smell like coconut, they would be like, get out of here. <laughs> so the, the, the idea of having terroir-specific information and drying temperatures associated with these variety written on the box doesn't seem crazy at all that seems like a very natural natural evolution yeah, yeah and you should at um, least
2: be able to supply that information to your customers at this point too and and they're asking for it
0: all right okay so this is a little bit of an experiment you are listening to the first time but this is a little bit of a mini series within a series super meta all of that um exploring the three main ingredients that go into beer hops malt and yeast so i know that people listening to this may have varying degrees of knowledge when it comes to beer maybe it's a passing interest or maybe it's a career either way i always think there's room for learning and i for one know i'm a complete novice when it comes to all this Despite working in the industry for around six years, there is just so much to learn and that to me is pretty exciting. So I thought I'd do this little three-part series on the fundamental ingredients that go into beer and try and shine a bit of a light on the supply chain that feeds your drinking experience. Uh, So yeah, this is a little mini-series focused on that. And today we are going in with what many would consider the earliest of these three, hops. The aromatic, flavoursome, green buds that bring us all so much joy. Where would we be without them? And to take us by the hand and guide us through the virtual hop fields, we have Gabby and Zach from Crosby Hops. And let me tell you, you are in for a treat. These guys are super knowledgeable, enthusiastic, and most importantly, passionate about all things hops and hop production and growing hops, the, the, the foundation, the agriculture that surrounds this beautiful plant. So like I said, I'm a novice in this game, so apologies if you think some of these questions are stupid or childlike. It was basically me going back to the classroom and going into full learning mode. This conversation had such a good energy about it that we're just going to run through with it from start to finish without any major interruption, maybe a couple of breaks here and there. Um, And I really hope, and I'm pretty sure, that you will take something away from this. So let's get to it. But it wouldn't be an episode of The first Time without asking that all-important question. So I asked Gabby and Zach... What was that first beer that started it all for them?
2: All right, I am going to go with two beers on this one because they're both pretty significant to me. Um, I'm a first-generation American. Uh, My dad is from Budapest, Hungary, actually. Um, So he was always drinking Pilsner Urkel. And I never had any sort of experience when I was kind of in my rebellious teen years. And, you know, you're you're sneaking your parents' beer out of the fridge. That was never a Bud Light for me. It was always a Pilsner or Kell. So as soon as I got to legal drinking age, I immediately dove into finding higher quality beers. And uh, the first kind of wow moment that I had with a specific beer that is hop related would be Bell's Two-Hearted. It's an all-centennial IPA. Uh, It's just, it was kind of a mind-blowing experience for me that hops can taste like this. There's no fruit in this beer. There's nothing else. This is all one hop variety. And that was just a a turning point for me. I feel like I had been destined to be in craft beer from that moment on.
0: (laughs) So that's so funny because like that beer, I've not had that beer and... I've listened to a few different podcasts, and they can always bring it up, and it's just one that I am dying to try, because I know it was a real, like, we'll dive into Centennial a little later, because we have a little bit of a relationship there, but um, but that was a, just a full-blown full highlight of that hop.
2: It is a fantastic beer, and I would love to be able to make that happen for you and send you some fresh Two-Hearted. I actually (laughs) try to seek it out here in Oregon. I come from Florida originally, where Two-Hearted is a very common tap that you'll find everywhere. Uh, Here in Oregon, we have such a thriving local scene that it's kind of hard to find those regional craft beers Mm -hmm. out and about. Um, People think I'm crazy when I go around looking for Two-Hearted around here. So luckily, Bell's is a great customer of ours, and I have access to Two-Hearted whenever I want, which is amazing. And it's just a beer that you have to try at some point in your life such a beautiful representation of centennial
0: yeah and i know and i know it was kind of i don't want to say like pioneering but it was a real it, 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 i've forgotten the brewer's name now but i listened to an interview with him where he just like just wanted to focus on that hop and just do everything he could to accentuate all the flavors that he loved um which is awesome and again that hop is something that's definitely gonna f- uh feature on this episode uh but before um zach let's dive into yours
1: so Gabby's is a great story. It's a hard one to beat. Um, I was fortunate enough. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and so there's a brewery out there, a small little brewery called Sweetwater Brewing Company. They were smaller when I worked there for sure. Uh, I was fortunate enough to start working there when I was 20 years old. Um, at that time in my life, uh, I wasn't drinking the uh, the finest of craft beers. I was definitely probably in the, the, the realm of quantity over quality at that point. Um, and I remember my first day on the job, um, I was parking cars in the parking lot. Like I started at the bottom. Um, I got paid like 20 or $30 a day. But it came with free beer, and so my first day, I remember I like was like kind of done. I said bye to everyone, and as I was walking out the door, one of the bartenders said, "Hey Zach, like what are you doing? You get a shift beer? Like make sure you have a shift beer." I was like, "Shift beer, like all right." And so I sat at the bar, and they served me a Georgia Brown. It was a brown ale. I'd never had a beer like wow. that before, and it blew my mind. I was like, "Whoa!" Like I kind of couldn't believe beer could taste like that. And you could say that was the beer that changed my life. I ended up staying at Sweetwater for almost 10 years. Wow. Uh, so that shifted the course of like my understanding of craft beer and flavor. And then ultimately I kind of graduated into Sweetwater IPA, which I still think is one of the best IPAs in the country. Uh, it's super, super tropical. It was ahead of its time uh, 10 years ago or more than that now. Uh, and uh, so that was that was probably the, the, the beer that, that changed the course of my professional and personal life. Ended up meeting my wife at that brewery. Whoa. All my friends are there. Like, yeah, it was a huge shift. I always think if I never had uh that pint of Georgia Brown what my life would be like today. whoa much so.
0: love that and I think that's so cool like the um the way that you know i it's kind of an innocent question like what was the first beer but every answer is always just like this is a changes people's lives like this is led into the careers they now uh, have. So yours was kind of started at a brewery, but Gabby, where did you kind of navigate into before? Because obviously that those beers kind of changed your mind, but how did you originally kind of enter into the beer scene?
2: So the first job that I would um, call a real job in beer, uh, other than hospitality, beer tending, et cetera, was I worked for a, a boutique craft distributor in Florida, Family-owned, small operation. Um, They were actually the first craft distributor in Florida, focusing on boutique Belgian beers and German beers. Um, So I I was blessed to sell some of the best beers in the world, a lot of beers from Europe, um, and then a lot of great craft breweries from the West Coast. So some breweries up in Northern California. And, you know, it was a tough sell. Local beer in Florida was just starting to thrive. There's a lot of fantastic local breweries in Florida now. Um, And at that time, it was hard to find shelf space and sell these beers that were more expensive and required a little bit of more education to kind of appreciate. Um, So it taught me some great things. I mean, I learned a lot of sales skills there. I met a lot of amazing people. I've I've become such great friends with so many people that i met while I worked for that craft distributor. And um, after that, I was just, I'm never leaving this industry. Um, So it was a great experience to be able to sell some world-class beers in a pretty competitive market.
0: Now, this is a slightly different kind of interview than we've done before, because the focus has always been on kind of breweries, but we're kind of going to step up the supply chain a little bit now, and we're going to dive into hops, the thing that kind of most people within, I'd say, the, the kind of new wave of craft beer drinker in the UK are drawn to. They're, they're really starting to understand these flavor profiles, what these hops bring. So, but I think let's just start it right at the base level. What are hops? And uh, Gabby or Zach, you can you can take it as you want.
1: You know what's funny? Out of all of the interviews or anything I've ever done, conversation-wise, no one's ever asked me what are hops that's actually a really <laughs> good question so um gabby you want to take this one you actually grow hops in your backyard you probably know well <laughs> yeah i do go for it
2: i mean down to the to the very basic of what are hops it's a perennial crop um, we have a harvest once a year and it is an ingredient in beer that provides the balance to the sweetness of the malts and also provides the bittering and a lot of the aromatics and flavor, um, that you get in the finished product. Um, do we want to talk hop applications? I always want to go up yeah, a level, I, I mean, guess here. Yeah. I
0: think like, it's just start at the grassroots, uh, the, literally the ground level, and then grow up from there. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, think I mean, it's I just, guess it's just, if you want just to, talk nice about, to give people a bit more scope.
2: Yeah. I think historically, um, there was a time where hops were not used in beer and there was a assortment of herbs, uh, Spices, things of that nature. Um, and then hops started to be used in beer, and they provide a not only a balance to the sweetness of the malt, but there's also a um, – what's the word I'm looking for, Zach? Um, antimicrobial. Oh, antimicrobial. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it actually keeps the beer from spoiling, which I think was probably the initial use of hops way back when. Um, obviously, that has evolved so much now where mm-hmm. where hops were really trying to drive um, – hops, the flavor of hops out of hops and using a lot of unique hop applications, whether we're using it in the dry hop or whether we're using it in the boil. And we're experimenting with different fermentation temperatures to kind of coax different flavors out of hops. But the original reason we used hops really was for beer spoilage and just to balance out the sweetness of the malt.
0: Amazing. That is, uh, again, an an innocent question, but like kind of proves to be really fascinating because, again, it's it's stuff. I'm going to, this is going to be total, just real education for me. This is basically, you're just giving me a lecture on hops and I'm just going to learn it all from you guys. So, thank you. Um, So, getting a bit more into the flavor profiles, there's different things like alphas um, that are going to, is that kind of bringing more bitterness to it? I mean, can you just go into the kind of real. depth, I guess, of of what brings flavor to hops and and how they've increased over the years.
1: Sure. I'll jump in for this one to kind of start. So when we do certificate of analysis data, it's lab data on hops. We break it down into four main things. Uh, Alpha is probably the most commonly referenced um, piece of data with hops that does generally lean towards bitterness. So the higher the alpha percentage, uh, the more bitter that hop will be. And, uh, that will kind of determine where you use it in the brewing process. Um, back in the old days, alpha was everything. There weren't a bunch of hop varieties. There were, everyone looked at alpha, whatever, whatever, whatever that variety had alpha wise was what determined its use. Um, there wasn't a big aroma quality at all. Today, things have shifted drastically. Where alpha is still very important because you don't want to just blow the bitterness out of a beer, but at the same rate, there's a lot of great high alpha varieties that are also wonderful aroma varieties. Um, so that's been a kind of inter- an interesting change as proprietary varieties, privately bred hops, um, have really like taken the market by storm and have mm-hmm. shifted uh, the way brewers look at hop varieties. Um, it has totally changed the game. So alpha is the number one. Beta uh, is a different type of acid as well. That's number two. That doesn't, de- this is a really like, there's definitely gonna be a brewer out there that's about to argue me on this. It does, <laughs> it's not as impactful as alpha is, but still something worth discussing, especially for sour brewers looking to age hops. Um, I know beta becomes, um, a stronger component there. Uh, we then look at something called HSI, Hop Storage Index. Um, that determines how long a hop can, uh, can, can stabilize and stay mm-hmm. stable on a shelf um, or sitting ambient room temperature prior to pelletization. So that's helpful to know like for us, we use HSI uh, to determine um, a lot of our, I guess you could call it capacity planning, but a lot of it's like our process planning. Um, so which varieties, once they're picked, which need to go through uh, the pelleting process first in order to stay fresh the longest. Mm-hmm. Something's going to degrade faster, have a higher HSI. Um, that's something you want to get into a pellet as quickly as possible so you can lock in those flavor and aromas, put them in a freezer, and then they'll be good and shelf-stable. An example of a really high HSI, HSI hop would be Centennial uh, Centennial is not a good storage hop at all. Um, so what we do, we actually are processing Centennial into pellets while we're still harvesting. Oh, wow. It's a crazy thing to do on the farm when you're doing 150% just to harvest. And they were like, you know what, let's also turn on the pellet mill and get a crew of six or eight guys in there to go in there and, uh, and create pellets. So it's a handful. Um, so that's one, Idaho sevens seven's another one, although picked later in the season, um, you know, store abilities, not great. Uh, so we try to process that into pellets as quick as possible. And, uh, using that kind of data, uh, really helps us, uh, do our, our process planning better. And then the fourth piece, uh, which is really crucial is total oil. So that's the amount of oils, um, that are, are, uh, in the hop and that are present uh so for us there's there's a handful of things total oil can mean for a lot of brewers that can mean um a, a bigger levels of flavor and aroma that doesn't always translate directly in the beer but at least on a molecular level it does um and then for us on uh you can look at total oil to determine which size of dyes you need in the pellet mill so a dye is what actually creates a pellet and based on uh how uh, if you will how much oil is in these hops will kind of determine how much lubrication is is kind of naturally built into the plant itself mm-hmm. to be forced through these dyes. The ultimate goal in creating a pellet, low temperature. Keep the temperature as low as you can. Friction creates high temperature. So the higher the oil content, it's almost the the less natural friction that will be involved there. So you can use a different size dye. But something like check sots as pretty low total oil um, so that would be something that you would want to really pay attention to and really watch temperatures as you're uh, as you're creating pellets so we can dive into the pellet world a little deeper and definitely but those are the four like main data points that we look for uh, in hops and utilization and that's what Brewers are looking for as well if you wanted to go a step further uh, we don't have this in our facility, but there's a thing called a gas chromatograph. Um, a lot of growers and labs around the country are, are using this now. And gas chromatographs is, is, a, is a food Technology primarily that's been adopted into the hop world, and that will break down your oils and your hops into all of its. I guess it's their molecular parts. Uh, it's incredibly detailed. It is almost kind of like opened a can of worms into whoa. This is what drives flavor and aroma in hops, and so people are able to break down different um, different chemical compounds that are within hops, and some brewers are using that data to actually determine the flavor and aroma outcomes of their beer versus just the old school. Aroma, give it a rub, I think these will work well together. There's a lot more science and data going into beer production planning. It's amazing. And I'll say, I've said this all the time. uh, The reason I love the hop and beer industry is beer has been around for thousands of years. Some people say beer is the reason written language exists. Whether you believe that or not, it's amazing that here we are thousands of years later from the inception of beer, and we're still learning new things about its ingredients. We're being innovative. Beer styles, the last 15 years have changed drastically. Uh, and that's all, a lot of that's due to technology. Of course, um, excitement from craft consumers and wanting more, but also brewers putting in the, the effort and time to learn about like the differences of hop varieties, different brewing techniques, what's happening on a molecular level, and making decisions based on that it 's amazing and always way above me so it's, it's well, my, my a lot uh, more. talk to me
0: uh, yeah my cheeks are aching from smiling so much that was so like awesome <laughs> there was this, there's so much to dive into there i mean again i'm i 'm coming at this from you know i 've been in the beer industry for like six years now, but kind of on the sales marketing side um, but always so fascinated just by raw ingredients becoming something you know that that journey from uh Loading the grist case to trying the beer at the end of the thing it just always I, I, it, it never bores me um so what i 'm really kind of and if I ask a stupid question, please feel free to just shove it away and just be like that 's not that interesting, but this is interesting <laughs> because i, I again you 're a constant student of the game in this it 's like there 's just so much to learn um but it's all exciting to me so so I was just thinking you kind of mentioned about kiln temperatures and stuff there which is a relatively kind of new thing for for brewers and 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 trying to really uh push these big flavors forward but I wondered if we could kind of go back I don't know say like twenty years into hop farming and kind of what were the what were the priorities for a hop farmer like twenty five years ago because obviously this new wave of big flavor big aroma wasn't really the same and I, I don't know if it was a still in the kind of preservative aspect of hop growing it i mean sierra nevada have been going decades now so there, there was definitely some utilization for flavor um i wonder if you could go into that a bit more gabby if you could take that one
2: yeah i mean i think historically hops are a commodity they're an agricultural product and the name of the game was how much can we grow on the acreage and the land that we have and pay the bills um, and there was a point before craft beer where the hop industry was not thriving and arguably on its way out a little bit. Um, so the resurgence of craft beer has just ex- it, it's made the hop industry explode. Farmers are now paying attention to things like kilning temperatures, as you mentioned, um, agronomical practices, being more sustainable on the farm side of things, because that speaks to craft brewers, pelletization temperatures. Um cold storage practices, there's so much that goes into quality of hops throughout the supply chain. And I think that you're seeing a shift, a drastic shift now just for craft brewers. That's what's driving the quality of hop growing now. Um, previously, it was just really about how much can we can we yield on this land. And they would bail it off and, and send it to a big supplier who would likely extract it for the big macro beers
0: can we go into like is there is there a um a tipping point is there is there like a a kind of dawn of where was there a first farm for instance that really started changing the game with how hops were grown or, or or trying to push flavor forward or has it always just been driven from i guess people wanting it you know like you say it was just an agricultural product that someone had to pay the bills at the end of it it's just farming as we know cattle or any any other kind of product um Yeah, I just wondered if there was any kind of little bit where in history that really started flaring up this idea of uh, pushing it forward as a product, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, no, it does make sense. I can't really speak to any other growers. I know that uh the Crosby hops, we are a fifth generation grower on the farm side of things. And historically, it was kind of selling a high alpha uh, hop to a supplier, and, and that was it. And then when Blake Crosby, our now president and CEO, uh, stepped in, he's the fifth generation Crosby, he actually had to kind of uh, convince his dad, Kevin, to plant Centennial. And wow. that's why Centennial is so near and dear to our hearts here at Crosby, uh, because that Hop. We planted that hop specifically for craft brewers. Our business model has always been growing hops for craft brewers, so that's always been our focus from day one. We've never had to really pivot as far as the vendor side of the business, but the farm we did have to pivot, and Blake was really integral in that and convincing Kevin to plant that Centennial. And um, there's a really fun story about Blake where he had a Centennial sample in a mason jar, and he went and dropped it off to Bridgeport Brewery, who is no longer in business here but a very influential um, early craft beer pioneer here in the Portland market. And, um, you know, they took, a, they took a gamble on us and bought our Centennial, and that was kind of the story of how we started. Um, so I can't speak for any other growers. I do know that for us, it's been since the Crosby Hop side of the business came to fruition in about 2012 – it's always been about the craft brewers for us yeah
0: well i mean it's a better way to focus like focusing on crosby because you know that inside out is definitely where we should uh hone in because that's an amazing story right there in itself and you guys are nestled in oregon which is like craft beer capital of the u.s maybe even the world i don't know like i mean it just it feels like an absolute storm of amazing beers out there um what were you going to say there, zach you were just going to jump in
1: well, I was going to add to Gabby's comment, you know, if I had to choose a uh, a pivotal, like, pivotal, sh- pivotal, still, I'm high, I've had a lot of uh, caffeine this morning. A, <laughs> uh, a pivotal moment in craft beer would probably be, uh, in the U.S., Sierra Nevada, Ken Grossman specifically, brewing pale ale. Mm-hmm. Uh, for him, he brewed that beer not uh, not to keep up with the general macro trends. He brewed that because he loved hoppy flavor. Um, so I'd say like anyone growing Cascade uh, when Ken was was developing the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, to me, that was probably probably the pivotal moment of shifting of consumers' palates of, whoa, hops do a lot more than just add bitterness. They add a lot of flavor. And that, I think, kind of snowballed into brewers being influenced Probably through the consumer end of things, just drinking pale ale um, and getting excited about what hops can do, bringing candied citrus and pine notes. And here we are in 2021 and hops are bringing notes of wafting cannabis, coconuts, like like sweet candy, tangerine. It's incredible. So that would be my, my answer. I'm not sure who Sarah was buying from uh, when they were starting to brew pale ale. But that cascade, I think, was a pivotal variety uh, and shift in craft beer.
0: Well, yeah. Go, go, Gabby.
2: Sorry, I was going to make one more point about Cascade because I do remember um, Anchor Brewing. They, I think at one point, Cascade was actually about to go into the kind of library of USDA varieties that didn't make it to market. And Anchor was another brewery that was pivotal in using Cascade for Liberty Ale, I believe. And if it wasn't for their usage with Cascade, that variety may not even have come to market. And to think about... The beer and hop world without Cascade is just kind of mind-blowing to me because it's such an important hop for so many of the the, the biggest, most influential beers that we all drink now. Um, so to think about Cascade almost being written off previously, I think this was in the 80s, uh, maybe late 70s, where it almost didn't come to market. And Anchor was another brewery that was really pivotal in, in using that hop for a craft beer in the early early craft beer days.
0: It's so funny cuz I actually I I interviewed Sam from Other Half uh he was like one of the first guests actually on the show and he he was telling me that they'd done like a single hop cascade triple IPA or something. I was like, "Did you get people like queuing around the block for that one?" He was like, "Yeah, not so much." <laughs> but but it's the it's the hop that started this thing. Like it's the it's the hop that started craft beer. Um right, and and it has moved in waves since then. Like maybe we should start kind of touching upon where we have got to. Cause again, like the flavors that you now get from, from hops. I mean, I always use Sabro because it's just so direct and, and, and such, such a connected to coconut. Like you just can't help but smell coconut, taste coconut. Um, and I know that other things have had that, like Sriracha. Yeah, had a little bit of that too, uh, maybe a little dill pickle and stuff, but, um, but how have we got to this place? Like what? Because it's insane, and 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 I mean, the flavors are just so pronounced now. Like what? What's happened?
1: <laughs> I think I'll jump in first. I know Gabby definitely has an opinion on this. Uh, I think there is uh, this beautiful combination of art and science that exists in the brewing world, and mm-hmm. also exists on the hop world, especially now more than ever. Um, I think there has been demand from consumers to want bigger, more exciting flavors. Um, That's driving brewers to push harder on the innovation front, and that ultimately drives growers to try something new. It's the reason there are so many privately held hop varieties now versus 15 years ago. The percentage is, it's it's shocking to see how that's changed. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a shift, um, but it's driving a lot of innovation. So ultimately from the consumer level, um, and it's this, it's this, this beautiful thing that, that every brewer is like, they're almost, they're happy. Now, are they really ever satisfied? Not sure. They're always trying to push to the next thing, stay ahead of trends and find something new and unique uh, and working with their hop growers and suppliers. They found wonderful ways to do that.
2: Yeah, Zach, you could have said it better. I think that the consumer education in hops is growing and that's driving breweries to be more innovative, uh, in turn driving hop growers to develop new varieties and everybody's chasing, what is that next aroma descriptor Mm -hmm. going to be? We've seen every every flavor of tropical fruit that is possible at this point. Now berry flavored hops, berry forward hops are something that we're getting more demand for. You've got strata, which is probably the most exciting new variety um, on the market right now. That's got a wafting cannabis Um, Mm -hmm. aroma descriptor. So I think every hop breeder and brewer alike and consumer is looking for that big next flavor that's going to kind of knock us off our socks. And it's been really fun to see. And not only is it let's try this new variety, I think there's endless innovation with hop combinations, trying different varieties. Terroir Holy moly! You know, if you if you smell our Chinook versus a Chinook in Yakima, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's some there's some big differences in aromas with terroir. So you know, I've got we've got one customer I think who brewed a Cascade, all Cascade hop with Cascade grown in five different regions or something like that. It's really fun to hear the experimentation that's going on, and it's all driven by the consumer at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I mean, right? You touched on something. It's a it's on my bullet points right here, Gabby, which is terroir, um, which is a beautiful word, but. Let's dive into that because region is so important. Um, for those that don't know, terroir is basically just kind of like the principle of where the hop is grown, like the the soil that it's grown in. Something that you don't, you kind of lose track of. It's not something that, you know, in my early days of, of drinking craft beer that, that I was educated in. Anyone that's into wine kind of might understand it a little better. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, it's in principle, it's what is the hop grown in and what characters is that going to bring into the plant? I, I, am I, Kind of hitting the right notes there. I don't know if I'm uh, totally off pace.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think it's down to the different climates in different growing regions. You've got different cultural farming practices. Maybe Oregon, Willamette Valley farmers do things a little bit differently from Yakima. Yakima's got a different kind of high desert climate. It's drier up there, whereas Oregon, as uh, sees more rain and moisture and humidity, um, you've got different components of the soil itself. So there's elements of the soil that are going to be that are going to vary from region to region. Uh, it's been really awesome to see a variety like Amarillo grown in Germany and grown in the U.S. And we have German varieties that we're growing in the U.S. here as well. Um, so there's endless experimentation when it comes to terroir for brewers, honestly. And it would be really exciting to see more of that. Um, I know Zach and I both participate in our sensory panel here, and we're constantly wowed by some of the differences that we will get in a hop-like comet across. Rosby Estate Grown Comet is this really grapefruit, tropical, citrus, just super intense hop. And it's just different grown in other regions. Um, So it can bring something unique to your beer if you're seeking out varieties in different regions. And it's just something fun for the innovation side of things to think about.
1: Yeah, it's the next level. It's the it's the next level, man. It's it's not. It wouldn't shock me. In five to ten years, we'll start seeing boxes of hops with the coordinates of the you know the exact location in which that lot of hops came from. Like that happens in the wine world. Doesn't seem that crazy. I mean, Mm -hmm. sometimes we notice variance on our own property. That's you know we've got almost six hundred acres of hops, and we'll see you know, two different lots that are pretty different and they're not that far away from each other. So like Gabby mentioned, you know, Oregon to Washington, those are that, that can be a big difference. There's a latitude change there. Um, there's also different growing practices and cultures there. Uh, people have different views on when pick windows should be, especially for public varieties that are a little more unregulated. Um, so uh, it's interesting. And then you've got something like, cascade that again is is can vary widely from washington oregon and idaho but then our friends in new zealand planted it and there's new zealand cascade and that's a totally different animal for so many reasons uh terroir is a big part of that
0: yeah you're taking this in all i mean i'll just take my hands off the wheel because you're driving it for me but like (laughs) new zealand was exactly where i was going to go next because uh new world hops they they have such a specific kind of I mean, obviously, everyone's different in its own, but they have such an intensity, some of them, and uh, maybe a little spikiness here and there, but like they're, they're very pronounced. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit more on that, because, I mean, I don't know this. I know, obviously, terroir has something to do with it, but why, why is that region of the world so different?
1: I'll jump in. I think New Zealand is its own thing, man. There's If they have their own... <laughs> the animals in new zealand evolved on their own like everything about new zealand due to it's just kind of it's removed from a lot of where most of the land mass in the world is it's just a separate unique place when i think about like visually what i think of new zealand I, you think of those like beautiful rolling green hills uh, you think you know lush beautiful water it's this tropical environment um that's what the hop's scream as well. Uh, they have that profile. It's very citrus forward, uh, wonderful tropical layers, uh, very sweet, uh, very inviting. Um, you're not finding like, uh, Uh, very often you don't find big lager hops in new zealand they exist but that's not where new zealand shines new zealand Zealand shines in these tropical forward pale ale ipa hops that have their own unique personality and again back to terroir not that far away from australia i mean don't get me wrong it is but again australian hops they're they're different than what new zealand has to offer new zealand has a very unique fingerprint of the hop world that is so exciting to see growers Uh, Expand their acreage there and they're creating their own culture they're creating their own uh their own kind of stamp in the hop world that is uh that's giving them their own story and it is so thrilling to be a part of and to watch it and to again back to hops and growing hops been happening for a long time here we are still innovating finding new terroir new varieties and interesting ways to grow um it's it's always just so fun to follow
0: The first time is supported by, none other than, Crosby Hops. Whether you're looking for spot hops or locking in a hop contract, Crosby Hops has the hops you need exactly when you need them. Varieties like Amarillo, Eldorado, Idaho 7, Centennial, Kashmir and many more are available now. Crosby Hops is a B-certified, independent and family-owned hop grower, processor and merchant based in Oregon's beautiful Willamette Valley in the heart of the Pacific Northwest, USA. Through generations of hop industry experience and their robust merchant processor platform, Crosby have cultivated long standing relationships with like minded independent growers and hop breeders across the globe. This unique model, alongside partnering with trusted independent distributors like Locker and Brewing Stores, complements Crosby's estate grown hop portfolio to provide discerning brewers access to a diverse selection of the finest hops on earth. And as you'll get from today's episode, these guys know what they're talking about. First time is also supported by Lochram Brewing Stores. Since 2014, Lochram Brewing Stores has been connecting brewers with the world's leading farmers and producers of brewing ingredients. By working directly with hop and malt producers including Crosby Hops, Indie Hops, Hop Revolution, Biwa, Lochram Family Malt. Best malts and castle malting, Lockham Brewing Stores is able to supply the highest quality and most environmentally sustainable ingredients on the market today. Whether you're brewing hazy IPAs, Imperial Stouts, or any other style of beer, Locker and Brewing Stores has everything you need to take your beer from farm to glass. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents the first time, and this is our interview with Crosby Hops. So, I don't want to be down on on Britain because it's got such a strong hop kind of culture to it, and and you know some of the hops are still used, but generally in more traditional beers. So I mean, you know, they say that the UK is not too dissimilar to New Zealand, as in how far away it is from the equator. It's a small island, um, but why why the British hops? You just don't see them with the same kind of um, what's the word? hype, I guess you could use, you know, like there's just, there's just no British breweries that are really, you know, going straight forward into all just, uh, you know, like double IPAs and stuff. And they're just not known. I mean, to be honest, I wonder if it's just not, not explored enough by British breweries because they just know that you can get beautiful hops from Oregon and New Zealand. But I just wondered if there was anything that you guys know about or have uh, an opinion on uh of kind of the growing processes that why why maybe the uk hop industry is not seen in the same light as new zealand's
1: and gabby can you jump in first and i'll happily let you to dive in uh i think the biggest piece here gabby and i are both on the sensory panel uh at crosby so we evaluate all the lots that mm-hmm. go uh in and out of the farm um one piece that we always uh, we always uh, evaluate hops on uh, is a thing we call ohai, uh, Overall Hop uh, Aroma Intensity. Mm-hmm. And for us, citrus and tropical tend to be the most prominent. You can break those down to a bunch of different um, uh, types as well. But those are the most prominent notes that we look for. But what's almost even more important than that is ohai. Th- those hops have to be impactful, have mm-hmm. to jump out of the glass of a beer right they have to invite the consumer in and that's what brewers want they want intensity out of their hops and i think that's the one thing i've seen over the last handful of times i've rubbed um uk hops they're lovely and they're wonderful for british style beers for esbs and pales um great for lagering but they don't necessarily have that intensity that is driving the new wave pale ale and ipa market that's that's where my opinion lies for that one i love those hops they're great it's different
2: Yeah, we haven't seen, we don't personally see much demand for UK hops here in the States, uh, unless you're brewing an ESB or a classic British style. And unfortunately, as much as every brewer wants their ESB to be their number one selling beer (laughs) on tap, it's not. It's usually the hazy IPA. Yeah. Um, And so the UK hops just don't necessarily equate to that style of beer. And there's also a marketing component behind hop varieties that is pretty important. And I I don't see here, at least in the United States, any sort of marketing done behind British varieties. Mm -hmm. If they are innovating and developing new varieties, that kind of memo isn't being heard over here in the States. And going back to New Zealand hops, um, if you look at it from a global acreage perspective, New Zealand hops are less than 1% of global acreage. So there's also this, like, exclusivity that's always been there with New Zealand Nelson Sauvin or Motueka. And now we've got Ruwaka, which is another really hot hop that agronomically is kind of a nightmare. So if you can, you know, if you can ever meet demand, there's always going to be this, like, kind of, like, yearning for these hops. In a, in a sense, for brewers, which is why they're always seeking out those New Zealand varieties. But there's a lot of innovation going on down there, developing new varieties. There's some some great partner growers that we have, both Freestyle Hops and Hop Revolution, who they come to the United States and, and they come to our uh, harvest party and they're trying to specifically go and, and meet craft brewers and get into that market. Um, so I think that's some of the differences you might see between New Zealand and UK hops.
0: So do you think it's just been kind of like focused on a lot more? I mean, because... Again, people are probably shouting at the uh, at their headphones listening to this. But I know Brookhouse hops over here, but I don't know a huge amount of like uh, I guess on the market inside. They're just not in people's faces that much, you know. There's a little bit, and, and like you said, all for the ESB. We did a beautiful kind of light summer ale, blonde ale, that worked beautifully with British hops. But but nothing, you know. You've got the full kind of. I can't remember who it was. You guys will know. But I did a lot of um. Americans kind of go over to New Zealand and start a farm over there and they they have their kind of like annual people coming out and doing the rubs and all that kind of stuff and building these relationships and I guess that's kind right. of that's kind of a big part of it is building these relationships with brewers because they're the people that are going to um, sell your product further you know if you see Other Half or Green Cheek or Bagby or something like that using a certain varietal from a certain place then you're going to be like well if they've given it the green light then we're going to give it the green light because we respect those guys, their, their palette and their their senses, and and if this is where it's going, then we want to be there. So I guess, I guess market in is a huge part, and and that's kind of where I want to go next, really. Um, you mentioned like, com- right. yeah, <laughs> you mentioned stuff like um, comet, for instance, and it's just not something that we. I'd speak from tracks, but it's not something we've ever looked to for dry hopping. Um, there's certain ones that kind of fall under the radar that might have like incredible characteristics, but just don't seem to carry the same weight. Now you've said Strata earlier as well, which is just this new kid on the block that is just setting the world alight uh, in the in the beer world. You know, people really seek it out if they see Strata on the the label they're going to go for it. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about like how marketing plays into people's, uh, tastes really.
1: So marketing and storytelling is crucial in any business, honestly. Um, but as the hop world, especially around breeding and new varieties, um, has become more competitive, there's a lot more noise. So you have to break through. There are a lot of new varieties that come out every single year that go unnoticed. Um, why certain varieties stick, uh, is, is, it's not a mystery, but it's definitely hard to put your finger on. The key, in my opinion, is, is, and it's going to be equitable to, to other businesses. It's going to be adoptability. Um, and, in the beer world, especially, uh, I see, uh, peer, approval being almost more important than anything Mm -hmm. you can have a hop grower or supplier come and tell you about all these awesome varieties that are new and exciting this is the biggest most flavorful hop we've ever made you know yada 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 but ultimately what matters is that brewer that's going to purchase that hop and use it are their peers using it are their peers approving of it are they seeing other beers being made with it that are great can they improve upon what's already been made um, you do have those uh, early adopters, the ones that do, you know, work with growers, find a brand new variety that no one's ever used. Sierra's great at this. Uh, and putting it uh, into some some innovative beers and, and giving it some legs, giving it at least a head start to mm-hmm. get moving. Whether that makes it to a full life cycle where it gets healthy and adopted around the U.S., the U.K., EU, around the world, that's a, that's a rarity. There aren't that many that make it that far. So if you can get... Um, some brewers to brew with it and be successful. And then the key is letting them share their experience with their peers. Um, I think peer adoption and that peer approval piece is so important to brewers. And it's kind of unique to our industry um, as far as collaboration. I haven't really run into to any, any brewers that close the book of innovation to their competitors or to their uh, their peers within their city or their state.
0: Um, you see
1: brewers collaborate all the time and say, here's what I'm doing to make this lager more expressive, or here's what I'm doing uh, on the hop side to to make Strata jump out of the glass even more than what we've done in the past. I just figured this out six weeks ago. Try this. And we'll open the book and say, here you go, look at it. So that kind of adoption and that kind of storytelling that's peer-to-peer, I think, is everything. Um, again, a sales, a marketing salesperson like myself, can go in and tell you all about these awesome varieties <laughs> that holds a little bit of water, but it's not going to be this the selling point. If you're a brewery neighbor who you respect down the street or down city over or state over or whatever is brewing with it successfully, that's going to make all the difference in the world. Um, so that's what I see. And um, a good way for like growers uh, to get those first adopters out to try some things and hopefully do something great with uh, is what you were mentioning earlier with Americans that, that, uh, uh, have some hops in New Zealand. That'd be freestyle. Yeah, uh, They're awesome. Great people. Uh, they, uh, they're they really good about bringing customers over mm-hmm. and experiencing what New Zealand Harvest is about. If you can get a brewer to go experience hop harvest, it is the best way to create like a brand loyal customer or at least to kind of like, you get the full experience. I remember the first time I went to a hop farm, it was actually, it was a Crosby. Uh, it was, since I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, no hop farms around, I was always seeing hops on videos and print materials on social in the brewery, but I had never really seen it in person. And when I actually got there the first time and walked through the hop field, it was like seeing a celebrity I've seen on TV that I finally got to meet in person. Like I was like, Oh my God, like it's, it's real and it's unbelievably beautiful. It takes over all of your senses, the sounds, the smells, the sights, everything uh, at the farm is, is exceptional and it's, it's, it can be overwhelming at times. So when you get that experience as a brewer, you're hooked. If you go, if you visit a hop farm and you don't stay a brewer for life, I don't know. I don't know if you're in the right business. It's so inspiring to be there. Um, so you pair that experience with some storytelling on a new variety. You've got a lot of customers that are willing to be innovative for you. Try something out with, without necessarily a proven track record to give you data. If that data is positive, what we lean on is that brewer telling that story to their peers and letting that naturally spread around the country and around the world. And that's what we've seen really with Strata. That's been it's an Oregon bred variety. And we've seen that thing go from... Uh, a small little X three three one tiny variety to it now being Strata, which has been requested around the world. It's um, r- miraculous to see that happen. It's really cool.
0: It's so cool, and uh, you kind of were dancing around, but it's it's a pilgrimage to go like it's it's like a holy thing for a brewer to go to the hop fields and see it. And we haven't yet done it. I mean, we've always kind of been you know we're a relatively small brewery that might change soon, but uh, um, we were supposed to go on our first kind of hop harvest uh, when covid struck so that was kind of a total bummer but like everyone that i've ever spoken to and again to mention sam from other half he said it's the most important trip that he takes every year like it, it doesn't matter what's going on like the the dates in the, that are going in the diary before anything else are, are, are cropping like going to the hop harvest because when you are looking for these little nuances and little differences to set you maybe slightly apart and and what you also mentioned is that citra from one lot to another lot might change drastically and this is a real kind of interesting picture because you've got maybe they want only say old school bre- brewers but like you know you've got you've got these different kind of levels where people want this punchy tropical citrus stuff and other people want like classic citra character um I've kind of lost where I was going to go because you, you mentioned, I was going to say to you, Gabby, I was I was going to ask you if there was any ones that kind of, any hops that you fell had fallen under the radar slightly just due to the, the lack of connection to Brewers.
2: Yeah. And I think, uh, going back to the whole proprietary versus public varieties, um, it's important to note that it takes about 10 years to breed a new hop. It is a huge investment for, um, the, whether it's a grower breeding or a breeding company. Um, so it's obviously going to be important to market that hop and make sure the quote unquote hop influencers, (laughs) as I like to call them. And Sam is a good example of that. But if, if, if other half is brewing with a new variety, then it's likely that a lot of his buddies are going to be brewing with it as well. Um, so getting the new varieties into the hands of uh, those brewers is also a really important thing marketing wise. And I think Comet Going back to Comet is a great example of an under the radar public variety. We're obviously partial to our Crosby estate grown Comet because it's super punchy. Zach talked about Oh earlier, Oh of five, which we're very conservative with the fives in the panel. But Comet just hits you in the face with citrus tropical notes, and we actually uh, will suggest that as a Citra hedge, uh, where you can actually brew with Comet a little bit. Say you're a little short on your Citra, or Citra very expensive. You know, we, we, breweries need to make money too, right? So sometimes they'll they'll kind of sprinkle in a public variety that's going to be at a lower price point just to kind of make their margins a little bit better with their beer so Comet's a good hop that you can get those great crazy tropical citrus aromas out of but not a lot of folks know that I think
0: oh it sounds like we should do a collaboration doesn't it yeah
2: I, I think, think so yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. All in.
2: and Comet agronomically I love too because mid-season it actually the 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 leaves turn a gold shimmery color and this is only in the middle of the season. Uh So I always make it a point as hops are growing. And right now we're, we just started field season, right? So it's April ish going to be April tomorrow, but the sun's out spring is here and uh, the rain is starting to dwindle. And that's when the hops just start shooting out of the ground. And so I will make it a point to go Our Comet fields a little bit off site, a couple miles down the road. um, And I'll go to make it a point to go visit that field during the growing cycle because it's really fun to see it change colors halfway through the season. So, uh, I happen to just really love that variety personally. So we should Ooh, definitely I th-
0: collab. I think we should, I think I'm going to try mm-hmm. and uh, bend, uh, bend Matt's arm and be like, look, we should, we should do this. Like, especially like in, with this uh, podcast coming out and stuff, it'd be cool to kind of take that to a, to really, f- for me to understand it as a hop more and, and Matt to see what it could do. Cause it's just not something that is ever like, Oh, do you want to get some Comet? And that's probably as far as it goes. Right. And that's, that's
2: <laughs> the difference, I think, between a public variety that's bred by the USDA, yeah. and they've they've bred some amazing hops. But you know, you've got a private company that's going to put a little, little bit more money and resources into the marketing efforts behind developing so can, new. Can varieties. we dive?
0: Can we dive into a little bit more of that? Because this isn't an area that I really know much about. So this is private versus public.
2: Right, exactly. So we have hops that are bred by private companies. Uh, There's growers. Virgil Gamash Farms is an example of a grower that um, has developed Amarillo, which is a variety I think everybody's heard of, a really great, great, great hop for IPAs. You've got the Hop Breeding Company. They are the breeders of Citra and Mosaic and Sabro and all those really, really popular varieties. Um, and then you've got some growers that are experimenting as well with um, breeding hops, too. So you see a lot of innovation from growers and companies. And then you've got the USDA program, which is the, the government-funded program that is also breeding hop varieties.
0: I did not know that you, there was a government-funded yep. program for hop gr- Is mm-hmm. that, I guess it's because it's an agricultural product, so it's, it's like a farming subsidy.
2: Exactly. Yep.
0: Right, right. Um, oh, this is great. <laughs> um, you, again, you touched on something there. Um, and I don't know, either of you can take this one, but varietals, like 10 years or 10, 15 years or whatever it takes to, to actually produce, um, a new hop. So, you know, like the demand is so high now for people wanting new experiences in, in the beer world. So, you know, like again, to go back to Sabro, that was two years ago, two, three years ago, kind of came on the scene and really, mm-hmm. you know, like, I think it's probably great to have a kind of Marmite hop. I don't know if that's a reference that you understand what Marmite is, but it's- <laughs> No, what is that? sorry marmite is it's uh it's a yeast extract that you you have on on toast or something like that but it's like you either love it or you absolutely hate it so if it's a marmite flavor it means that you either love it or you absolutely hate it and sabro Uh, yeah
2: polarizing yeah Yeah.
0: polarizing um which would have been a much more universal way to say that but uh (laughs) i'm educating you on something um can we go a little bit into how that comes to be like are uh, new varietals like derivatives of say citra that you kind of take to a different place or breed in a different way to try and accentuate certain characteristics. Um, yeah. So if we could dive into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. The, the ask of, we need new hop varieties every year. It's a really, really big ask. Yeah. On average, it takes about seven to 10 years, usually on the ladder, usually closer to 10 years to get a hop from new variety to actual like production ready to, to fulfill needs of brewers around the US or around the world. That's a totally different ballgame. Um- and there's reasons because there's a lot more than just flavor and aroma. That's like one piece of it. That's probably the baseline. It has to at least smell good and brew well. But then we start looking at things like agronomics. Uh, so we start looking at, okay, what are the yields? Does it yield enough to make a farmer want to grow it? Is there is it, is it a business viable variety? So that's something that takes a few years to figure out. Uh, we also gotta figure out, is it pest resistant? If it's a great variety and yields great, but all of a sudden it's super susceptible to downy mildew, uh, probably not a great variety to grow uh, if it's going to not make it long term. So that might get the ax. Uh, and then we go uh, further down the line of pick windows and capacity planning. So let's say uh, there's this wonderful variety. It smells great. Tastes great. It's pest resistant. It yields great. But all of a sudden, you can only pick it in, in the window that is citra. Well... Uh, pickers can only pick so many hops at one time so much acreage so if you've got two competing varieties for that same pick window something's gonna something's got to give wow. and it's either going to be your citrus going to get picked too early or too late or your new exciting variety is going to get picked too early or too late and it ultimately just doesn't work so that's like a big thing that i think gets missed uh in the discussion of, of hops is people ask like like we're all we, we run out of strata like every year and it's it's because there's a high demand for it and the question is always why don't you just plant more strata? Like screaming it from the <laughs> top of the mountaintops. And it's like, we would like to, but we can only harvest so much. And at the, where the pick window is, there's only so many farms that have that kind of capacity planning. So... Uh, uh, the, 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 folks that run Indie hops, um, that, that owned, uh, the strata variety, uh, you know, they're working with multiple growers that have different capacity planning models of which, which varieties they're growing and working on squeezing strata in those, those appropriate pick windows. So that we ensure that that variety is consistent across the board, no matter who's growing it. Um, and what you see with the pick window piece is when varieties get stretched too thin, you start seeing things get picked too early and too late. Mm-hmm. They become too green grassy. They become a little bit OG and dank. Ultimately, and that's probably like a brewer's worst nightmare is to buy, you know, 1,200 pounds of X variety hop. And when they used it last year, it smelled like whatever, citrus and bubble gum. And then this year, all of a sudden, it's grassy and green or it's kind of oniony and dank that's not good. It's not good for the variety. It's not good for the longevity of people's trust in that variety. So all those thoughts go into developing a new variety. And so again, that ask of what's new, it's like, well, there's a lot of new stuff out there, but is it viable long-term? That's a totally different, totally different question.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting about hop breeding because you'd think that the aroma analysis and all that kind of comes in the beginning of the process, but that's really not the case. That's actually the last thing um, that you evaluate in the beginning. And uh, every seed that falls from a hop vine, so you've got female hops are the ones that flower, so it's always females. The seeds that fall from every hop plant is actually genetically unique. Um, so hop trucks that are driving around the farm during harvest, if a if a vine falls off of that truck and seeds drop, you could potentially have a new variety growing on the side of the street wow. um, that you that you could develop and scale into a commercial hop. So there's a couple of different ways to develop new varieties, and one is just harvesting those seeds, um, and the other is just purposefully um, getting plant material and crossing it. Um, so first, the first thing that you do is you got your seedlings and then you'll actually inoculate them with powdery and downy mildew. And that's kind of a pass fail test right off the bat. If it fails after inoculating with uh, mildew, it's not mildew resistant and you're not going to want to grow it commercially. So that's kind of a, a, the culling of, uh, I think you could start with a hundred thousand seedlings. And after that, uh, inoculation, you're, you're left with maybe 5,000 or something like that. So then you put those on a short trellis. So a standard trellis here in the United States is about 18 feet tall. Um, you'll put them on a little, what, four-foot trellis, probably, mm-hmm. Zach, something like that. And then you'll have to identify whether they're male or female. Male's got to go. They're not giving us the hot flowers, so we're keeping all the ladies. Um, So then, you know, after we've determined that they're the correct sex, then you're going to grow them for a couple years on the short trellis to see if they're um, vigorous. And if they're not, if they can't even make it up a four-foot short trellis, obviously that's not going to be commercially viable. So then you'll cull those guys as well. So each year you have a different class that's in a different part of the process. Eventually, if they pass all of those um, preliminary tests, then you put them on a what you call a single hill, which is just one tall trellis for them to grow on and uh, we've got you know you got a couple rows of a single hill and you're going to grow them up on the 18 foot trellis and and it you know then you'll evaluate them for several years for continuing to evaluate them for disease continuing to a- uh, evaluate them agronomically pick window that's when you kind of dial in the pick window for us if, if hypothetically we were developing a new variety we'd love one that was super early or maybe super late but not in the middle because we're already stacked with amarillo harvest in the middle of the season so that's another thing you have to to look for. And I think strata is a really good example. In my mind, strata was bred initially. And this may not be the actual truth because I'm not indie hops, but agronomically, <laughs> the thing is a monster. It's resistant to disease. It yields really well. I mean, you see these clusters of hops on strata that look like grape clusters, wow. you know, and it's, it's just a beast of a hop. It's like walking through a forest when you go to a fully mature strata field and you're walking between those rows, like the sun, you know, <laughs> you're just walking through this crazy, crazy Two sheets of hops on either side of you. And, um, you know, luckily for Strata, it also brews amazing. It's a great, great flavor hop. It gets w- along with all other hops. And, but I think agronomically is probably why they initially were scaling that variety. And then luckily the aroma was amazing too. So that's kind of the last little piece that you look for.
0: Man, that was an absolutely mind-blowing experience. Thank you so much for that. That was like, because <laughs> I knew I, it's something that's obviously been thrown around. It's like, oh, it takes 10 years to 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 get a new hop. And I think I had always kind of thought, oh, maybe that's just the flavor, like the accentuation of flavor and all that. But there's just so much. Um, and it's interesting as well. There was, again, there was so many points in there. But brewing brewing is not one-dimensional. So we're kind of lucky in a sense is that we brew new beers all the time. Changes aren't that big a deal, you know, because you're just constantly brewing new things and every beer is different. But there's a lot of brewers out there and breweries in the US, like, that are huge, for one, that need consistency of product. So, you know, like, finding those hop varietals that are just going to... St- have got the strata effect, which is just... they're great to brew with, but they're just great to grow with and they're a consistent breed. Um, is super fascinating. Yeah, because because... We can be a bit more, I don't want to say haphazard, because it's still very much uh, focused. But but for those guys, when you're talking about bells and centennial, for instance, um, you know, th- they must be on your ass a little bit about if any, there's any slight, like, variation. They're like, no, this isn't right. This isn't the centennial that we want. I wonder if you could go into just a little bit more about how you actually um, maintain that kind of uh, purity, I guess, of, 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 the, of the plant.
1: Yeah, so... I like that you brought up bells. It hurts when someone like bells, you've got eight cuts of Centennial on the table. And what did they say? None of these are really going to work for two hearted. Like as a grower, you're kind of like, you play it cool, but it hurts inside. Like, oh man, like that's the, that's the standard we try to meet. If you meet that standard for bells, everyone else who's buying hops, who's buying that variety uh, in the hop industry is going to, we're going to keep it to that standard. You brought up consistency earlier. Consistency is the most important thing in a hop variety. Absolutely possible, especially considering how many brewers buy hops on spot versus contract. Mm -hmm. That percentage is shifting constantly uh, where more spot purchasing is happening versus contracting. Uh, It's harder to predict predict the future. We have this saying in Crosby, we understand contracting is difficult. It needs to be there for communication and for planning on the grower's end. But it's also a hard question to ask, right? It's the question of like, if I had to ask you how many computers does Track Brewing need for the next five years, you have to, you have to know right now, can't change it. And the price is what it is Dude, today, right? It's impossible there's, there's, to ask.
0: Yeah, there's some horror stories of over-contracting and things it's like difficult. that in the, in the beer world. It's
1: yeah. difficult. So we really encourage brewers to have a nice a blend of contracting the varieties you know you're going to need long term, but also... Um, filling in with spot where needed. If you're going to try some new beers out and be innovative, definitely go on the spot side of things. It's okay. And the reason I kind of got to this point is with the amount of people buying on spot, when you're making that spot decision, you put so much faith into that supplier or merchant or whoever it is you're buying from that that hop mm. is going to be consistent quality. You're not selecting it in advance. You're assuming that's going to be right. So making one decision actually creates a handful of quality decisions that other people are making for you. Uh, so it's really important as a brewer if you're focused on consistency. Man, make sure you're buying hops from the right people that are storing them properly, processing them properly. If they have connections with a grower, or like Crosby, we are the grower as well. Uh, It's important you have open dialogue about their growing practices to ensure you have um, good, consistent hops. I encourage every brewer, ask questions. You can't ask enough questions. We love getting Mm -hmm. those questions. It's way better than the opposite where we get into no communication, and then down the road something goes wrong. Um, it's easy to mitigate early on. I'm going down a different path this conversation. Um, I'll let uh, no, no, it's I'll great. Gabby jumped it's in just... about about consistency <laughs> and. Uh, that's I
2: mean, change. I would say it's definitely a badge of honor to be a Bell Centennial supplier. I remember walking into Crosby yeah. for the first time for my interview, and I saw we have a tin tacker in uh, an area we call the sunroom, which is where I had my interview, and I saw that we were an official Bell Centennial supplier, and I was like, wow, that is really cool. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, wow, I love Two Hearted. So I thought that was a really cool moment. And then come to find out that Sierra sources hops from us. And a lot of a lot of breweries that I, you know, I'm truly a fan of are customers of ours as well. And it, it depends as far as consistency, it kind of depends on what style of brewery you are. Uh, for example, we have one brewer who comes out for hop selection every year for Amarillo, not really a production brewery, so he goes for the punchiest, dankiest mm-hmm. citrusy. A lot of Amarillo every year, Uh, whereas another brewer who's a production brewer and maybe that's in their flagship IPA, you know, let's talk about maybe Rheingeist and Truth. They're going to be targeting a specific Amarillo flavor aroma every year to keep the consistency and to make sure there's no variations in that particular beer. So they're always aiming for a mid-pick Amarillo that's got a nice little backbone of dank, but really punchy on the front with the citrus notes. So it just really depends on your beer. It depends what style of brewer you are. The best way to ensure consistency is you know hop selection but for smaller breweries that doesn't always work because there are minimums with selection uh but that's what a brewery like Bells would come out and do every year is they're going to they're going to rub seven or eight different centennial bales and then they're going to choose which ones they want allocated to their contract.
0: and oh, um, so it's yeah I mean I guess like the hop contracting is really interesting because I mean we were always a kind of well we are a really small brewery but thankfully you know our beers made an impact which kind of leads to better conversations with like you guys and stuff where we can actually go right we, we think we can do a really good job showcasing this hop we want to build a relationship and I remember when you guys kind of came on the scene in the UK because I don't think you were you selling a lot into the UK for the last decade or so I, I just remember like people talking about it a lot more and being like oh we've we've been rubbing these like someone had been going to each brewery and we were rubbing these uh, Crosby hops and they're just beautiful and they which is the next part I want to go to. They're really soft. The pellets kind of um, a super, I don't want to say delicate. I don't know what the right word you probably, there's probably. A, I have a technical term with, for can, that,
2: Stefan. Go, 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 It's Squishability. Yeah, <laughs> we look for squishability. It's actually the density of the pellet. But uh, Zach spoke yes. to this earlier. Actually, it's a um, temperature thing for us. We don't want to give away too much there, but uh, a lower temperature just yields a, a softer pellet, which is going to be ultimately uh, better in your liquid. So you don't want the pellet sink into the bottom of your tanks or clogging up your tanks. So you want it to disperse into the liquid and get the full utilization out of that. Um, so we actually call it the squishability test. We like to rub the pellet between our two fingers and, and it should, you know, break up really nicely for you.
1: Yeah, if, you're yeah, because, rubbing, I mean, if you rub it hops between your fingers and you cannot break it and it feels like a little BB, like that's a bad sign that somewhere in the pelleting mm-hmm. process it got too hot and glassy um, and that pellet's way too dense. And ultimately when you put it in your tank, like Gabby was saying, uh, it'll probably sink to the bottom and not break apart, ultimately not utilizing really or any flavor or aroma. Um, and I think the brewer's worst nightmare right, is opening your your – uh your tank and pulling out a clump of dry hot matter like that's the worst thing that can yeah. happen
0: and we've heard well, it's of, just well, money it's just a clump of right? money as yeah, well exactly. like, it's just that's like, not being realized it. um let's go a little bit more into crosby then because let's let's i know you want don't want to give too much away about what you guys do because it is a kind of you know behind closed door you've, you've put all this energy into making sure that your product is what it is and you don't necessarily just want to let everyone know how to do that but can we just go into like what defines what what you think defines crosby hops um and what's the kind of ethos that really drives you forward um
1: i'll start really really big picture our mission statement is uh using modern agriculture as a force for good so that covers everything we do as a company um modern and the fact that we're a certified b corp Um, so we focus on B Corp values to drive the ethos of our business, um, that includes sustainability. And a lot of people think about sustainability as taking care of the environment. And that is very important. Our office is outdoors. So crucial. We take care of the environment, (laughs) but also sustainability of our people. Um, it's really important, uh, to keep your employees happy, fulfilled, engaged, um, and part of the team. Um, so sustainability around having days off, uh, around, um, paternity leave, um, all of that a uh, pay, especially um, in agriculture, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wide range uh, of pay rates and it's not always good. Uh, so we make it a mm-hmm. point um, to pay above average uh, for all of our employees. And it's uh it's not the most, it's not the easiest way to do business, but it's the right way to do business. So that defines a lot of what we do. Um, the other side of it is just really, again, focusing on consistent quality across the board. We're really, really fortunate that we are are unique in the hop growing industry and the fact that we are a hop grower uh, a hop processor and a merchant. Back in the old school days of hop growing of 20 plus years ago and beyond, uh, like the beer world, old school isn't that far away. Uh, you mostly had hop growers that were families, family businesses that grew hops and picked them and dried them and put them in bales. You would then sell those bales to like a third party merchant that would usually process them into pellets and then sell them to breweries that was the way the industry works so as a grower a lot of times you were kind of handcuffed to uh the prices set by those said merchants and it was was a tough business times of great fortune but also times of great famine Uh, when blake kind of saw that and it was was his turn to step up and be the fifth generation uh um uh person in charge at at crosby he saw this the history and saw the ups and downs didn't know if that's what he wanted to do for his future. So Became innovative and said, you know, I'm watching craft blow up. He lives in Portland, Oregon. I'm watching it just blow up everywhere. Breeze are opening left and right. Innovation's happening. Hop forward beers are dominating. He wanted to get in. So like Gabby was saying, he he kind of made a, made a pitch to his mom and dad. They personally signed on personally for a loan to build a pellet mill, which is not cheap. And wow. you cannot just go online and buy a pellet mill. It takes a lot of effort and time <laughs> to build that. Um, built it on farm. And so overnight, he basically, well, not overnight, over a few months, uh, he basically uh, vertically integrated integrated his business. So all of a sudden he had quality control over growing his, uh, his own hops, quality control over now processing his hops into soft, which he saw his buddies in the craft industry were asking for softer pellets, something that would disperse better in dry hopping. And then from that, naturally, he was the first one, but built a sales team and started selling his own hops to brewers in the Oregon area that then spread to the Northwest, that then spread around all 50 states, and now we're all over the world. And so having that quality control from plant to pint, whatever pun you want to say there, across the board, it really makes us unique and it helps us... Fulfill our, our, our personal values and our company ethos of providing the best hops in the world for the best brewers in the world. Um, Keeping it consistent and uh, having that guiding light. Um, doing good for the planet. Do good for the people. Do good for the hops. You're going to do all right. That's, that's probably the best way I can define what Crosby's is all about.
0: It's an awesome equation. Do you want to add anything to that, Gabby?
2: Zach uh, hit all the marks there. Um, I do think we're seeing a trend in just transparency with supply chain and brewers Mm -hmm. are demanding higher quality hops. They really do understand that the quality of their ingredients are ultimately going to yield a better beer. Um, And I think historically you've seen kind of the export market get the leftovers, so to speak. And we entered into the EU market going... These brewers are going to get the same hops that we're selling to our customers domestically. You're going to get, you know, the the best of the best. And it's not going to be the scraps or the leftover. And I would encourage every brewer that does business with us to come to the farm so they can see exactly what Zach was talking about. I think it's impactful to visualize and start. And I, I encourage brewers to really ask those questions to their suppliers, too. Where were my hops grown? And maybe tell me more about the farming practices there. Where were my hops pelletized? How quickly were they pelletized after they were harvested? With Centennial, we're pelletizing within two weeks. And that is a huge, huge value add for a variety that has a higher HSI. Um, Where are they being stored? What temperature they're being stored at? How are you packaging these? Where are they being pelletized? You know, follow the hops journey from when it was grown to when it got to your beer. And you might be surprised where that hop has been. At Crosby, we're keeping it all on site. Um, and so that's really cool to be able to show folks around and say, Hey, here's, here's our fields. And, you know, obviously we source from a, a bunch of great partner growers as well. Um, so that's part of our business model too, is we have our state grown varieties, but we're also sourcing and hand selecting hops from partner growers, whether that's in New Zealand or in Germany or up in Yakima and Idaho. Um, so that's another big value add is is diversifying your portfolio is really important. And I think we had a good reminder of that agriculturally this past harvest when we had wildfires come into the area. And, oh, wow. Yeah, it was really scary. It was um, probably the hardest harvest. I know in my experience here at Crosby, uh, it was super challenging. We already had COVID protocols to think about and safety was safety's always top of mind for us. But then you add wildfires into that mix and, you know, you're already working so hard during harvest. And normally that's balanced out by a lot of our customers coming and we're having a lot of fun. And now we have Topwire on site. Um, so, you know, which is our, our storage container bar that we carved out into a centennial field. And, you know, we're, we're ex- expecting customers to be there drinking beers and everybody happy and hugging. And, you know, that just didn't happen this year. And then you add wildfires in the mix and it, it was crazy. It was just a kind of a really good reminder that hops are an agricultural product. Um, so it's just something to always remember when you're doing your brewing planning and planning for your raw materials.
0: Well, it's really interesting that you were mentioning about like brewers kind of being more switched on to these these kind of things because it's 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 something we've dived into quite a lot in in each interview which is like what is a brewery like what what does it is it just a producer of beer or is it something bigger than that you know and and fundamentally you know it's the answer that keeps coming back is it's a community it's a community of people and then you you know you have whether it be culturally or agriculturally it's it's a almost a responsibility to try and um create a better world, I guess, like in, in, in all essence, you know, it sounds kind of big and shoot for the moon kind of thing, but it's, it's true. And and I think that's trying to drive those ethos in every part of the supply chain is, a, is beautiful. And it's, it's so great that that's kind of where you start with, like that's your principal statement is that we, we are driving for to look after the people that work for us, but also look after the brewers who, who are going to use our product and I wondered, Zach, if you were kind of, because you mentioned about like how it had it would have like a geolocation on the box. I wondered if it was going to start having like, you know, this planted here, this like a full timeline and, you know, like stored at this temperature, for you know, like all of the kind of just details, like a top trump card of just like, this is what you're getting from us. Just a, an absolute kind of seal of um, excellence, I guess.
1: I mean, 25 years ago, if you told anyone who's making beer that there will be hops that smell like coconut, they would be like, get out of here. So the, the, the idea of having terroir specific information and drying temperatures associated with these variety written on the box doesn't seem crazy at all. That seems like a very natural, mm-hmm. natural evolution. Yeah. yeah. And you should
2: at um, least be able to supply that information to your customers at this point too. And, and they're asking for yeah. it.
0: Right so this kind of leads on nicely i guess to the next bit which is generally um i ask kind of brewers um you know what how do you see the next 5 years whether like what is a brewery in the next 5 years is it how do you see beer evolving you know or how do you see you as a brewery evolving um and people take it in 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 a lot of different ways like we just kind of mentioned whether it's like uh, how they sit in 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 the kind of social fabric of society um or just on a purely like production scale of like how they see beer being produced in five years, but I'd really like your kind of view on the hop industry because that's what we're here to talk about. But how do you see the kind of next five to ten years progressing in the in the hop world? Are there, are there big changes afoot, or is it kind of just taking a steady um, trajectory?
1: I'll start. I think we both have we'll both have good answers here. What I'm seeing primarily is a major shift into hops being recognized as a food product. Mm -hmm. It's currently not. There are no no legal guidelines in the U.S. I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but in the U.S. specifically, that you need to be food safe or have food safe practices within your hop processing areas. That, to me, is kind of wild, considering how uh prevalent dry hopping is in cold side additions, because there is no boiling. There is no, you know, disinfecting that way by any means. So I'm gonna I'm thinking I'm gonna see a lot of growers specifically, and this should trickle down into brewers asking these questions. Um, improving their, their pro, their growing and processing practices. Um, the hop quality group is a group within the, uh, the beer industry that, uh, their goal is to, to visit growers, uh, all throughout the Northwest. I would assume around the world. I'm not sure about that one. Um, and evaluate their practices down to simple things, bird netting, simple things like, uh, is there, are there, is there light bulbs? There's light above, uh, your bale breaker. What happens if that light breaks and glass falls into your bale? How is there a way to monitor that and mitigate that? Nobody wants broken glass in their pellets, right? And also looking at things like certification, such as Global Gap, which is on the farm side of things, falls into the food safe things, and a lot of its worker safety. Um, so I see a lot of that progression and hops moving into the world of food products, which I think is going to be really innovative, um, enhance quality across the board, and make growers walk the walk, not just talk the talk, and prove it through certification. Doesn't have to be B Corp certification. Global Gaps a great one. If you're a grower, maybe adopt Salmon Safe. Um, try to reduce. Miticides and any sort, and, and go for a natural pest management um, by introducing predator bugs versus just spraying. Little things like that to make hops a, a healthier product for your employees that are working there, healthier for consumers that are going to drink them, and ultimately better quality and consistent quality for brewers that are that are doing the art in creating these these art forms that are wonderful beers. I see that being a next big phase, and then the other half of that would be growers, processors, and merchants. Starting to do a little more for the community, giving back and doing better for the planet. So again, altering practices within their business to, to create uh, uh, happier, more uh, empowered employees um, to make a better product, and to ultimately take care of, take care of the community around them. I know that's a goal for almost every brewery that exists. They want to be that community mm-hmm. hub. Beer is such a social lubricant, um, and we talked earlier at the beginning of the podcast. You know, the the beer that changed your life. Think how many lives have been changed in a tap room. It's shocking to think about that. So I hope that continues. And I hope that conversation within that tap room can go all the way back to the grower. And so people can have conversations about where the ingredients from their favorite breweries beers are coming from. My ultimate goal. I'd love to see uh, a craft beer consumer go to the tap room bar and say, what beers do you have with Crosby hops in it? If that happens, like I can retire and I think my job will be done. So that's, that's where I'm hoping to see our industry uh, go in
2: the next, the next five.
0: Amazing. Days. There's a lot in there, but Gabby, I'll let you shoot, uh, shoot first.
2: Zach made all the good points there about just being a good partner, um, in the community, giving back, you know, there's a lot of social injustice right now. There's, there's some pretty heavy stuff going on mm-hmm. over here, especially in the United States. Um, so we are focused on, contributing to causes and that speak to us. Our core values are quality, sustainability, community, and innovation. Um, And we will walk the talk, walk the walk, talk the talk as a B Corp. Mm -hmm. And that's been just an amazing thing to be a part of. Um, I do think also that a trend you will see is just more innovation in the next five years or so, whether that's developing new hop varieties or developing different types of hop products. Um, That's another trend that we're seeing as well.
0: Yeah, there's a lot, I guess, yeah, the hop product's a big one because you had cryo, which was just a powder at first, and then they kind of realised that that wasn't the most effective way to actually dry hop because it kind of just sat in clumps and then you, you've you got cryo uh, pellets. And people are kind of responding to that. We You know, we put on our cans if it's cryo hops because I think people understand that it's it's something slightly punchier. I wonder if you could just... Um, sorry, I'm just... Usually this is where I kind of round it up, but there's so much more to <laughs> ask. If, if Like, what... You kind of touched on there. What is, for instance, like a cryo hop to just a normal... Uh yeah. So we right do,
2: right. we do the T90s. T90, um, sorry, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that translates into the metric system, but yeah. um, it, it's really the ratio of vegetal matter versus the lupulin oil. And the, that is where really the, the, those molecules that Zach was talking about that, that lead to the flavor in the beer, that's where they are. So the concentrated hot products are really just trying to reduce the vegetal matter mm-hmm. and focus on just getting those, that, that lupulin oil um, into the beer somehow. You know, there's some advantages to it in terms of shipping, you know, it's less Less packaging, less product. Um, so shipping rates might be cheaper. Uh, there's still a lot of experimentation going on with that. There's, uh, the, the T90 pellet to me seems like the perfect product, but you can kind of work in a concentrated hot product with a T90 as a supplement to kind of yeah. get a punchier hot flavor. Um, we do a hop hash, uh, product, which we actually, the hammer mill, which that's what really grinds up the bale, um, Going into the pellet process. So you've got to grind it up into a, a powder basically to get it to pelletize. Um, and so there's a that's that part of the pelleting process is the hammer mill. And we'll actually take their screens in there. We'll take the screens out and we'll actually scrape the screens by hand and get like a sticky hash type wow. of product. That's really fun. Um, and most most folks will either use it in the whirlpool or they'll they'll break it up and make a slurry out of it and dry hop with it, but it adds to a big hop pop. So there's a, there's a lot of different products out there right now at this point, and, and I think we'll still see some additional innovations there too. And that's just really for brewing efficiency um, and, you know, maybe saving some money in, in shipping your products as well.
0: Oh, that's super exciting to see where that goes. Cause I can imagine it could go anywhere. I mean, like brewers are just dri- driving for more and more craziness and, and they're driven by consumers. So whatever the consumer wants, they will get the as, uh, as we advance this. Um, and another interesting thing that you touched on there, Zach, was the kind of agricultural side. And, you know, we are talking about climate change is probably the biggest uh problem that mankind faces at the moment or if ever um and you talked a little bit about pesticides and stuff and this is a huge thing in american agriculture you know you don't need to browse far on netflix to find uh, some documentary on uh farming you know practices in the u.s which just basically destroy all soil using like glyphosate and things like that so i wonder if you could just you know, before we round this thing up, just just talk a little bit about the actual practices that maybe you guys have put into to just retain that because the soil is so important to what you're doing without good soil. You have that shit hop. So. So, yeah, just a little bit about what kind of Crosby are doing to make sure that that's um, that's looked after.
1: Yeah, so we call it integrated pest management. Um The idea there is is to reduce pests without with Reducing, if not eliminating, any sort of sprays. Um, so the biggest issue, we'll start with like uh, with mildews. Downy mildew is a challenge. Um, a lot of that can get mitigated by choosing which variety to grow. If the variety is susceptible to mildew challenges that are within your region. Don't grow it. It's okay. Let the region that's going to be a better suited climate for that variety grow. That's a really quick one. There's a reason why Columbus isn't really grown in Oregon. It's the exact reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could put a bunch of it in the ground, but we're going to have issues. We're going to have to spray a lot. That's going to damage our environment. It's just not worth it. Um, another piece of it would be, and I mentioned this earlier briefly, it would be um, miticide free yards. So miticides are sprays that kill mites. They're little, little bitty bugs that destroy hops. Another alternative to this would be introducing predator bugs that eat those mites that don't damage your hops. That's okay. Um, that's a natural way of mitigating that challenge. Um, I think the old school mentality is, uh, all right, you've got a yard of hops. Oh no, I have mites. I need to kill them. So I'm going to go get this chemical to spray them. It's a natural thought process. Yep. There's, there's, it's not like that was that's incorrect. That's, a, that's the way the human brain works to, to mitigate a problem. But there's a better, more sustainable solution. And that would be introducing, again, predator bugs to go eat those mites naturally and create a healthier ecosystem within your hop yard with zero sprays. We have quite a few yards across me that are miticide-free. We don't really like broadcast that's that so widely. Cool. But that's something just internally that we do. Yeah. And we're proud of that. And that'll be something that probably a better story we tell. Over down the road as we get more data and, and see the, the larger impact of that. So that's a really that's a really big one. And then I'd say the third piece of this is find a third-party certification that holds you as a grower to, to specific standards. So we've partnered with Salmon Safe. Uh, Salmon Safe, they're awesome. They're, they're, they're based in the Pacific Northwest, kind of started in the world of I think grapes, uh, has expanded into to hops and has now started expanding into other um, other different types of, of fruits and vegetables as well. And what they're gonna monitor is, of course, your spray records, what sprays you're using, your farming practices. practices, Practices, even down to like little things, like where does the water runoff go from your fields? Um, And the ultimate goal of measuring success for them is how much does it affect the salmon population in your area? And that's specific to the Northwest. It's going to expand over time. Yeah, it's going to expand over time as it spreads around the country. Um, But if you affect the salmon population in a negative way, there's a whole chain of events that happen. You affect the animals that eat the salmon, the animals that eat that animal, ultimately up to humans, and it makes a huge impact. So having someone uh kind of call you out on on areas of of concern and areas of improvement is incredibly beneficial and it it, it keeps you it holds you to your own standards, if not higher standards that and Safe has, has set. Um, so we really, really enjoy working with them. And um, that's something I implore any hop grower to go down the path and reach out to, to Dan Kent over at Salmon Safe and have a conversation. Even if you don't get the certification, at least have a conversation to start what goes into it and understanding what goes into really healthy growing practices.
0: Man, it's so, so exciting and kind of, I don't know, it just feels so good to know that like, further up the supply chain, people are really Caring for the planet, I guess. I know it sounds like really hippy dippy or whatever, but it's like this is hugely important right now. Um, and well, I was joking earlier
1: about our office being outdoors. I mean, it is. Yeah. <laughs> like we can't we can't go in and hide in air conditioning and act like there's no problem outside. Yeah, I mean, we see it every single day. We see changes every single day. The wildfires this year. If you didn't believe it before then was was the most eye-opening thing I have ever experienced at the farm. I know Gabby said the same thing. It was shocking to work through that environment, shocking to see the effect of that. And it kind of doesn't feel like the last time, you know? Yeah. Like it feels like this is something that we're gonna have to get used to. And that's really, really scary. And is hoping opening the eyes of other agricultural industries to start making a difference. Again, put their money where their mouth is, walk the walk, and help make the planet better for everyone who's living in it. Not just for those uh, that are benefiting from the profit of those crops, but benefiting humanity as a whole. We're all affected. We all live in the same ecosystem. Um, There's nowhere to hide. I think COVID, hate to bring up this topic, is the ultimate expression of how interconnected humans are. This virus spread around the world in a matter of weeks that's that 's how interconnected humans are we 're breathing the same air we live in the same environment we need to take better care of it
0: well i can 't think of a better place to kind of stop the stop the interview really that 's such an we 've spanned so much there I, I just want to thank you guys so much that was so educational and incredibly fascinating and we touched on things that i wasn 't really aware that we were going to touch on which like that end topic there which is Possibly the most important topic that we've even talked about, you know, like beer in the glasses is great, but like actually making sure that we've got incredible farming practices and people taking care of, you know, these small, hop holding is not a small bit of land. I mean, I don't know how big Crosby Farm is, is it thousands of acres? We're going to...
2: That's no, 600 acres. Of yeah, about island. 600. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. But then I mean, yeah, you multiply that with all the other hop growers, and yeah, it's it's a, an incredible thing, and it makes me so happy to know that. Again, further up the supply chain, people are really thinking about every aspect from the from the hop in the glass to the actual, uh, you know, procedures that go into growing that. So yeah, I just want to thank you guys. I don't know if there's anything that we you, f- you feel that we haven't touched on, which we should maybe. Touch a little, because I mean I've got all the time in the world. So if there's anything that you feel we missed,
1: I'll close with one. Back on the sustainability touch, uh, the s- sustainability piece. Um, as a brewer or even consumer, start with brewers. We get the question a lot of you know, like where, how do I, how can I start being. A sustainability program. Where do I start as a brewery to become sustainable? It's challenging because being sustainable isn't always the cheapest option. And when you're a new young brewery, usually your goal is like survival, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's creating a profit, surviving, keeping your business open. It's not always, let's create a recycling program. Let's reuse water. That's, That's not top of mind. That's okay. So the best way to start as a brewery to become a sustainable brewery is to work with sustainable suppliers. Ask questions about their sustainability program and buy your hops, buy your malt, Uh, Buy your cans from anyone that has a sustainability program with a proven track record. That alone makes a massive impact on the world, and it's a great place to start. And as a customer uh, that is buying craft beer, buy your beer from breweries that are putting effort into sustainability. It will make the planet a better place.
0: Awesome. Gabby, do you want to? Add anything Gosh, to that?
2: We could we could do an entire episode on like the sustainability. Maybe stuff we should. Our, that,
0: maybe we should. Right?
2: <laughs> episode two, sustainability initiatives. Yep. But we, we're definitely seeing a trend towards more breweries becoming B Corp certified. Um, it's just important. Look at climate change, look at the social injustice, look at the the need for more diversity and equity and inclusion um, in this industry. And that to me speaks volumes. Um, of businesses and what they're doing in those categories, and I just encourage everybody to ask those questions of their suppliers and um, it's, uh, consumers alike. Ask those questions of your breweries. You know, we're zero waste committed on our at our offices. You know, we're running on renewable energy. These are talking points that we actually don't even really talk about too much because we're doing it for the for the good of the planet and the good of our people, not not so much just to market those types of things. But it's good to set goals, and everybody should have them at this point because the planet and the people need it.
0: Awesome. Guys, thank you so, so much. That has been so good. One of my favorites, like to learn everything and to hear about your stories as well. Um, I think we should do this again. I think there's there's a point there at the end that maybe we can really kind of dive into a little bit more and, 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 you know my aim is to speak to you know malt and yeast the three principles of beer um and maybe touch on what what they're doing to to do the same locker Malt being one of them which you guys work with um yes they are
2: buds of ours
0: yeah get will on yeah Yeah. Yeah. love Um, Love those guys (laughs) awesome thank you so much guys stefan
2: Um, thank you for having us i just really hope that i get to see you around the farm this harvest and that we can drink some beers at top wire we can drink comet ipas yeah, absolutely. Yes. There, there will be plenty,
0: I'm sure. <laughs> All right, there it is. The first episode of our mini three-part series is done. I hope you enjoyed that one. I take... I take something away from every conversation but that was just such a kind of education and just amazing to know that further up the chain people are taking so much care in everything they do from their procedures, to their staffing, to their environmental impact. It's truly inspiring and I dream of getting over and actually being able to visit those guys. Um, Yeah, so I really hope you enjoyed that one, a massive thanks to Zach and Gabby for doing that. A big thanks as ever to Tom Coucher for putting this episode together. Thank you to you for tuning in. I'd love to hear your feedback and, you know, this is definitely more of an educational route but trying to tie in the stories as well and, yeah, like I said, I'd love your feedback to see if it was hitting the notes or the bits that we could change up to maybe make it more insightful. Um, yeah, all of it. Anyway, thanks again. This has been Track Brewing Co. Presents The first Time. I am your host, Stefan Melbourne. And as ever, stay thirsty.